0: It's Friday, September 30th, 2016, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or com. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app.
1: This week's episode is sponsored by Decode DC, the podcast that gives you an honest look into how politics affects your life. The host of Decode DC, Jimmy Williams, you've got to hear this guy. He's worked in politics on both sides of the aisle as a lobbyist. He really knows this stuff, and he's taken all that experience and explaining how things really work inside and outside of Washington. Decode DC is a smart, surprising... It challenges the conventional wisdom, like in their recent episode about SALT, on how and why the government decided to push food makers to reduce sodium levels. Check it out. I did. I think you'll love it. That's Decode DC, available on iTunes or any other podcasting app.
0: My co-host Kishore is taking this week off after he did such a great job covering sexual harassment in science last week. If you haven't checked out that show, please do. And this week, I had the pleasure of speaking to one of my favorite scientists and science communicators. Coming back on the show is Stuart Feierstein. He's a professor and former chair of the Department of Biological Sciences at Columbia. And his previous book, Ignorance, told us about how science is not about knowledge, but rather about what we don't know. His current book is called Failure, and I can't wait to share this interview with you. So with that, let's take a short break, and we'll be back with my interview with Stuart Firestein. If you're looking for a dose of good karma, check out Crazy Good Turns. It's a new podcast that celebrates people who do crazy good turns for others. Each episode tells a vivid, moving story about someone who stretched the boundaries of human kindness to help people in need. This week's episode focuses on Derek Kayongo, a man whose journey has brought hope to countless people across the world, and it all started with a little soap. Here's a sample of what you'll hear. Yep, hope in soap. The same soap he watched his father make when he was a child. Something that most of us are lucky enough to take for granted on a grand scale. By Derek's count, the US throws away 800 million bars of soap every year. 2.6 million bars of soap every single day. The stuff that in third world countries can save millions of lives by improving sanitation and hygiene. Check it out at crazygoodturns.org slash minds or search Crazy Good Turns on iTunes or Stitcher. Stuart Firestein, welcome back to Inquiring Minds.
1: What a pleasure to be here. Thank you.
0: So the last time we talked, which I have to say is one of my favorite conversations on the show, you were really pumping up ignorance and you know, telling us about how important ignorance is to science. And now you've turned to failure.
1: It's a little niche that I'm kind of working out for myself here. Ignorance, (laughs) failure, you know.
0: (laughs) So let's first talk, though, about what you mean by failure, because, you know, not all failure is good, right?
1: Right. And I'm, of course, not all, but just like not all ignorance is necessarily good. I think, though, the reason I push it this way is that we often, I think, underestimate the potential value of failure. We do two things with failure that I would like to work against in, in this book and in what we're going to talk about. One is that I think we underestimate the value of failure and the amount of failure that's probably acceptable or even valuable. And the second thing is that I think there's a deeper a deeper meaning to failure, a deeper kind of failure than what you typically find in sort of self-help books. You know, it's just something to persevere through. It strengthens character. And, you know, you have to fail in order to succeed and all of those other tropes that we hear, which are more or less true, you know, when it comes to sort of love or sport or business in some ways or another. But I don't think it's so true in science. I think there's a deeper kind of failure in science.
0: And you actually quote Samuel Beckett, who I didn't know was the originator of the fail better idea. And right from the quote, you can see that it's quite different from how most of us now think of as fail better, you know, a slogan that Tim Ferriss and Silicon Valley entrepreneurs use. So can you tell us a little bit about the Samuel Beckett fail better idea?
1: I could try. I could try. Because there the the important thing is that um, it's not fail better in order to succeed. It's, is there a better way to fail? Is there something valuable enough in failure to figure out better ways of failing? I mean, typically, I think what we do is we just think of failure as one thing, like it didn't work. Oh, well. But but Beckett, I think, is, is suggesting to us that no, there are better ways to fail. There's crummy failures and there are really good failures. I use that quote often with a Gertrude Stein quote in which she says, a real failure needs no explanation. It is an end in itself. And I think that's the deeper kind of failure. And this notion that, like with ignorance, I mean, there's, as I used to say, there's kind of low quality ignorance and high quality ignorance. It's not all the same. And I think failures are also not all the same and one can improve the way you fail, and the the kind of failures you have. And that's what I think Beckett is getting at.
0: Yeah, so before we get to, you know, even the good failures in science, and and that whole idea, you know, one of the things that kind of kept gnawing at me throughout the book, and and at points you address this, you know, is how closely related this is to the reproducibility crisis in science. Because, of course, there's 100,000 reasons why someone would fail to replicate another person's experiment. And many of them are not good. There's, you know, the only reason that we think that we would get some knowledge out of it is if it actually shows that the effect initially was spurious. So how should we think about, is there another way we should think about those kinds of failures that happen as a result of negligence or not knowing how to set up the experiment correctly, you know, or all these myriad ways in which an experiment can fail, but doesn't really give you the right information?
1: Yes. So, so the first thing I would say is I, I don't think there is a crisis. I don't think there is a reproducibility or replication crisis. Um, I think we are coming to grips with the fact that things are not always as easy to reproduce or replicate as we might have thought so, that maybe we do occasionally publish things prematurely because of various pressures and all that. But overall, I would not say it's a crisis. I say that science is based on a great deal of failure and that replication failures are a legitimate kind of failure in the best case, what they tell us is, even if it is, if you will, I mean, this is a pejorative word, negligence, but but I'm going to use it in a way that's not so pejorative. Negligent in the sense of, I didn't know that was something one should control for. So I think you can do an experiment and publish the results. You get a good result, you get a solid result, and then somebody else tries it and can't replicate it. But they're doing something just a little bit different that There was no way any of us really could have known that this little bit of difference made a difference and made it such that not so much often we have to realize that these replication failures are a total failure to replicate, just a failure to get what we call the same level of statistical significance. And that's a big difference between a total failure and a useful kind of failure. So quite often you'll see, I mean, in this big study that was done in psychology papers, people would try to quote, replicate one of the experiments and get the same significance level, the statistical significance level, which you know we call p equals 0.05. And that simply means if you did the experiment 100 times exactly the same way, on five occasions you might get get this result just by chance. And so we find that acceptable. We say, okay, so 95% of the time, it really was the things we did to get that result. And then somebody else comes along to replicate it and they say, well, I can only get p.07, and that's not considered significant, even though the 0.05 value itself is, let's face it, arbitrary. I mean, we set it at that, that number, and nobody really knows exactly why it was set at that number either, but it is and has been. But 0.07 is not really not replicating the result. It's just not as statistically significant. And what it generally means is, oh, there's a little sum, there's another variable that I think needs to be taken into account here that we hadn't thought about. And so in my opinion, we've now learned something from that failure to replicate.
0: And, you know, when I was reading a lot of these failures to replicate, part part of my mind was thinking, is this a generational effect, right? Because now you've got a whole new generation of students who are participating in these studies, assuming they're done on, say, undergraduates, who live in a very different world in a lot of ways. And so, you know, it doesn't doesn't mean that the previous study was poorly conducted or wasn't truthful in the moment in which it was conducted.
1: Yes, I I think that's critical. The the last part of that, especially because It happens quite often, I find, in the press and and in the public mind when you talk to people that this so-called replication crisis, or let's just call it replication failures, uh, gets conflated with fraud. And they are definitely not the same thing. There is fraud, and that's very bad. I think the level of fraud or the incidence of fraud is fairly minimal in science especially compared to many other human activities but nonetheless we can't deny that it's there fraud is extremely bad it's in my opinion criminal it should be prosecuted it should be ferreted out and there's no there's absolutely no reason that you should there's, there's no explanation for it no nothing But that's not the same thing as publishing work that you believe is correct, but that somebody later on can't replicate because of some difference or change in the way the study was done. There's a famous example of this I guess in the psychology or social literature, somebody published a paper showing that if people were given a list of words or a list of phrases which tended to be associated with old age in some way or another, or older age, and then asked to walk down the hallway, and you timed them, people who were given the phrases associated with old age would walk slower than people who were given either neutral phrases or phrases associated with younger-aged activities. This experiment was then was published, and it was sort of interesting because it's a priming effect, and there's some interest in this, whether the way you say something or the way you deliver information primes somebody to think about it a particular way. The experiment was replicated in Belgium, as it turns out, and they couldn't replicate it. The people there couldn't replicate it. But when you look into it, you begin to realize, well, the structure of the land was done in French rather than English, the replication. Well, that's not really an exact replication, because in French, you know, we reverse the noun and the verb, and that makes a difference in the way people are primed by the words that are used. And words that are used in French for old age are a little different than meaning than they are in in, in a North America, and attitudes towards age are different. So all these things needed to be controlled for as well, so I wouldn't call this really a replication failure. I would call it a, a replication Well, I don't know what, what I would call it exactly, but, but it increases our knowledge. It tells us, oh, we need to go back and look even more careful at these priming effects because they're very, very subtle.
0: So that brings us to the kind of good failures that science seems to be built on, uh, at least by by you know the, the essays in your book. So can you tell us a little bit about this idea that there are good failures in science and, and how can we tell the good failures from the bad failures?
1: Sure. So so I think the the reason that failure and the good failures are useful in science is that, well, so based on my first book, you know, I believe that ignorance is a good thing in science and science is really about the stuff we don't know. And I think most scientists would Quickly agree to that. Most people would probably quickly agree to it, even though we're taught a lot of facts. What we really care about in science is the stuff we still don't know. So that's one kind of ignorance. And I'd say there's an even deeper ignorance than that, and that's the stuff we don't know we don't know. A phrase that was unfortunately made sort of famous by Donald Rumsfeld during the Iraq War when he was testifying in front of the Senate and claiming that, well, part of the problem was there were things we didn't know, but there were also things we didn't even know we didn't know, the unknown unknowns. And he was roundly ridiculed for this, but it's actually not a stupid statement at all. It's a very clever statement that, just to set the record, say was first made to my knowledge in a poem by D.H. Lawrence, in which it's a, it's a long poem about transitioning from life to death. And he talks about reaching out his hand towards the other side and experiencing the deepest unknown the unknown unknown and it's kind of chilling in a way when he says it but that's that's really a deep kind of ignorance the stuff we don't know we don't know and that's what we get to by using failure the only way to get to that is to fail oh we think we don't know something about something so we try an experiment and look the experiment failed well now we realize we actually don't know something even deeper about what we don't know I mean, just as a kind of a metaphorical example, you you know, you know, add A and B together, solutions A and B together, and you think they're going to turn blue because you have some hypothesis about this. So one kind of failure could be they don't do anything. Oh, well, that just didn't go anywhere. But a more interesting failure is they turn green. Well, that's a failure, too, because they didn't turn blue. But this failure tells you, well, there's something here we didn't know. What's going on here? There's some more interesting thing going on. That, although I use that metaphorically, actually happened in the discovery of green fluorescent protein, you know, a very important molecule that we learned about a jellyfish that we now use all over biomedical research to mark cells and to trace neurons and things like this. And in fact, the discovery of which was awarded a Nobel Prize in, I think, 2008.
0: Yeah. And so, you know, you, you make this, uh, I, I can't remember exactly who you were quoting, but you make this point that if an experiment succeeds, that's a measurement, but if it fails, it's a discovery. Yeah,
1: that's Enrico Fermi used to tell that to his students. Yes, if you, if you do an experiment and it proves the hypothesis, you've made a measurement. And if you do an experiment and it doesn't prove the hypothesis, you've made a discovery. Now, I think it's important to recognize that in science, both of those things are important. I don't mean to minimize measurement by this, merely to say that it's also important to make discoveries, of course.
0: Yeah. And, you know, in your book, you mentioned this as well, that in some ways, the way that science is going is actually going Against this idea because there's such a pressure to publish, there's such a pressure to become an expert in a very small area. And so we're all becoming much more specialized. When you're applying for major government grants, you essentially have to have done all of the experiments before you can get the grant, right? So are you really arguing that we should be rethinking how science is done today? Or is there something about how we interpret science or how the lay people understand science? That is just misinterpreted by, you know, in terms of how it actually works.
1: Well, I guess both of those in a way. I mean, I think I think it is misinterpreted how it works. I think the way, and, and I don't necessarily blame the the so-called lay public for that, the non-scientific, non-professional public for that. I think it has to do with the way we educate people in science and the way we publicize science to give the impression that failure is not really, that messiness and failure is not really part of it, that uncertainty is not, an acceptable part of science when it's a crucial part of science, actually. Uncertainty and doubt is what gives us, in my opinion, confidence in science. When you're absolutely certain about everything and you have no doubt about it, then I would say you should be looking around for a dictator or a demagogue in the area, because that's usually the way that seems to happen. And so we should take pride in uncertainty and doubt and expect that that's a great, that's an important part of science. That doesn't mean we don't know anything, it just means that we know better where the uncertainties are. So in science, for example, I think uncertainty doesn't mean what it means in in common language. And this is one of the problems is using these words in two different ways. And in sort of common language, uncertainty means, well, you just don't know, right? I mean, you don't know which way it goes. But in science, that's not true. Uncertainty is a quantity that we can work with. We measure it. We have statistics and other mathematical ways of measuring it. We do experiments to say, well, we're certain about this, but we have a little bit of two things going on here, We, we we have to dig further in this. And so these kind of uncertainties and doubts are what keep things going, and we should revisit experiments regularly. But it doesn't mean things are wrong. So unsettled science is not so much unsound science, as I like to say, it's just the process. Science is a process, it never stops. And so when you read a paper or publish a paper, it's not a conclusion, it's not the end of the line, it's rather a progress report. It's often not read that way. And and then there's the issue that you brought up, if you want to let me go on this rant just a little bit longer, of should we change the way we do science? Well... Yes, to some extent, because I think we've let the way we do science become infected by this need for, well, I don't know what the need is for, for certainty, for a risk aversive kind of position, for cleaning it up and not letting it be so messy, for all of these ideas where you wind up essentially writing a grant proposal about experiments you've already done so that you can convince people that this is very doable. But what good
0: is that? You know, that's something that's really bothered me about the the sort of, you know, the amount of of uh, papers that are published every year and how you know, it's becoming impossible to really become an expert in any field that is sort of significant. You know, you become an expert in this tiny, you know, one sub-region of the hippocampus, you know, that's that's your area, but you don't know anything about the other regions, or you don't know at least you don't know everything about the other regions. And what frustrates me about that is that there just seems to be very little crosstalk across, you know, these even even within a discipline now, across people who specialize in different brain regions. And I worry that we're losing some of the really fundamental insights that are going to be meaningful you know if 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 i if i have you know if i take uh, 10 of my papers and a, and i try to explain any one of them to a layperson they sound so trivial and stupid that i'm embarrassed <laughs> you know what i mean like but and, and yet they re- represent a huge amount of work and you know i'm very proud of the work i did but it's just this tiny 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 sliver of knowledge
1: So that's certainly true, but of course that's what, you know, that's what science is built of in many ways. Uh, The question then is, how, how do you, how do you keep an eye on the larger questions? How do you, how do you see where this all fits in? How do we talk to each other? How do we make sure that we're not losing expertise or losing important things in, in the gulf between these tiny little fields? And of course, I would say that, that where you can pick up, where you, where you can um, where you can bridge these goals is in the area of ignorance and to some extent failure. And well, let's not say failure, but rather let's say uncertainty or doubt. So I think that's where we can talk to each other. I think, yes, you have expertise in some small area of the hippocampus and then you go and have meetings with other people about that small area of the hippocampus and somebody else is studying visual cortex or entorhinal cortex and you have nothing, there's cerebellum and you don't know anything about that and they don't know anything about what you're doing even though there probably would be interesting crosstalk. But I think you can begin to know something about what they're doing if we all talked a little bit more about the things we didn't know, the things we were uncertain of, instead of trying to just dump a lot of the facts that we've discovered onto each other.
0: So when you teach your students to become scientists, do you incorporate a way of sort of addressing or looking at failures? How How do you help them fail better?
1: Well, I'm not very good at it actually. Uh, and I'm not very good at it because it it is a serious problem in how we educate, not just scientists I would say, but how we educate everybody in a way. And in fact, I know there's a, there's a lot of concern about so-called STEM subjects these days, you know, science technology, engineering, and math, or something like that, and that we're not training enough people, we don't have enough students entering these STEM fields, and we have to, we're not going to have enough people in the workforce, or whatever it's called, in the future, and all the rest of this stuff, and I don't actually think that's the case. I think we do a very good job of training scientists, in fact, in our educational system now, and if we want more of them, there's a very simple solution to that, and the solution has nothing to do with education, it's a political and economic solution. If you want more science, then you should pay them better salaries and make more grant money available for them to do their research. Otherwise, they'll take their critical thinking and analytic skills and go into finance where they can make a lot of money. And there's nothing stupid about that, unfortunately. So so the people that I really worry about, I must say, in our educational system are those folks for whom, who don't want a career in science, who are going to go into some other career, but for whom their last formal uh, interaction with science was some horrible lower level introductory science course that just taught them a pile of facts, what I call the bulimic model of education, where we just jam a lot of facts down their throat and then let them puke it up on an exam and move on to the next unit with no appreciable gain and and This is their last taste of science, and I think that 's a disaster because these people go on to be all sorts of things, journalists or corporate executives or uh, run NGOs or policymakers or, or just, frankly, citizens who have a vote. And, and it's these people who we don't engage in a way that, that they could be engaged in, in science, it seems to me. So how do I teach failure? Well, it's very difficult to teach failure to students because how do you evaluate how you've taught failure? So I think... A lot of things that we'd like to do with our education system to reform it are inhibited to a large extent because we're not very good at figuring out how to evaluate or assess um, students in our educational system. We still use these rather blunt instruments like multiple choice exams or things of that nature in a grading structure that's very hierarchical, and we still have students going through school according to their age. They're placed in a particular grade and given a certain kind of material according to their age. When we know very well from a lot of neuroscience research that different brains develop Uh, capabilities at different times certainly there's sexual differences between boys and girls and when they develop certain capabilities but even within the sexes different students different people develop capabilities at different times in neurodevelopment which as we know goes on until you're at least 25 years old but we continue to educate people in this very old system where everybody in grade 3 is the same age and everybody in grade 4 is the same age They all get the same material, and then they all get tested in the same way. So these are the difficult problems with how we do this. I do believe that there is a way to introduce into science courses more of a narrative component and where we should talk about the failures that led up to the great discoveries, that we should not just be teaching science as some sort of heroic narrative, and an arc of discovery where everything was smooth sailing from Kepler to Galileo to Newton all the way through to Einstein and Niels Bohr. And bingo, there's physics. But that's what we learned.
0: So I want to drill down a little bit more into that idea and talk about uh, your chapter 10, which is on negative results. You start the chapter with a quote from Alan Turing, if a machine is expected to be infallible, it cannot also be intelligent. And That reminded me of a conversation I had with a roboticist named Anna Howard, who said that the way that she builds a robot that a human will trust is by, you know, ensuring that it fails, making it, you know, programming in mistakes. And then when the robot says, oh, oh, I'm sorry, all of a sudden the humans say, oh, that's okay. And now they really trust them. So. I want to kind of unpack this idea of, you know, is is failure this really kind of human trait and is it something that is a sign of intelligence and how so?
1: So certainly failure seems to be a human trait because there's plenty of it going around. So it's clearly a human trait. I mean, it's not that machines don't fail as well. You know, my car fails on me more often than I prefer, of course. So so machines can fail as well, but certainly a, a A certain kind of failure is not only a human trait, but I think a high cognitive trait. That is, we use failures all the time. I think our brain works this way. It makes predictions about the world and then error checks against the real world. And and quite often we fail, and sometimes those failures can be very illuminating or very enlightening. It's the very messiness of things coming together that you didn't expect to come together that we often think of as being creative, or when things break apart suddenly and you see a new pathway. It's interesting we use the word breakthrough for some major new discovery, as if something had to be broken, something had to fail in order for us to see a new pathway, because we had things too well connected up. Things were too perfect. So I think that's absolutely true. It's imperfection that that is often the source of unexpected discoveries and creativity and all of those other kinds of intuitive things that, that are so crucial to science because it's, you know, I have this whole rant against the scientific method because I don't think there is one, for, for one, even though we teach it foolishly. And secondly, because I think using the word method about science gives, it, gives everybody the wrong idea, including people that do it. I wish there was a method, but I don't know the method. I mean, is there some place I can just put data in, turn the crank, and out come gadgets and discoveries and cures?
0: Well, let's talk about that for a minute. You know, I, I really want to ha- let our listeners in on your thoughts about this because, you know, we we do. You're ex- exactly right. We talk about applying the scientific method to so many different things, and and for me, the the scientific method is really about having a hypothesis and then proving it wrong, right? Um, or you know, essentially saying, well, it can't be that way, and and then finding the most kind of parsimonious explanation for all of the data. But there's a kind of, you know, there's an iteration to it. And there's an understanding that, yes, what we're doing is we're saying, well, that's not right. And that gets back to your whole ignorance idea. But tell me about your, uh, why why do you think that that's a, a sort of poor way of talking about science?
1: Well, for one, I just, I don't think it's the way it's actually done. I mean, I think when you get into a lab, you don't really use the scientific method very often. I mean, I can't tell how many times I and I know other people say to their students in the lab, graduates in the lab, well, you know, let's get the data and then we'll figure out the hypothesis. Because that's kind of the way you do it. I mean, things kind of come up and you see what's there. And then maybe you begin to think a little bit about a hypothesis. But one of the worst things I think you can do in a laboratory is come up with a hypothesis too soon. Because now you have kind of a bias. You have an allegiance that gets built up, even if unconsciously, to this hypothesis, which is your very cute idea about how something might be working.
0: Right. No, I mean, it's a big problem.
1: Yes. And then, you know, you begin to uh, unintentionally, I'm not claiming this is even fraud here, but you can't help yourself being a human being you begin to selectively think about experiments that are likely to prove your hypothesis and not experiments that are likely to disprove it. Or you you begin to find excuses for data that doesn't quite fit into the hypothesis perfectly. You know, oh, well, we those experiments were done on Tuesday by that new undergraduate, right? You know, things Tuesdays never seem to work out here, and those undergraduates, they're not reliable, and this and that. So you can always find reasons to dismiss an outlier, or something to that effect. So that's why I think get, getting, getting a hypothesis too soon can actually be quite a disaster. Leaves you doesn't leave you open to the data, to the uncertainty of what's there, to the outliers and the interest that might be there to the way it might fail in useful and informative ways. So, so that's one objection I have to the scientific method, and I guess that's a kind of a major one. Um, and, and the other is even this idea of, of fallibility, you know, that what you really are doing is trying to prove a hypothesis wrong. Because no matter how many times, this was Karl Popper, the famous philosopher's idea, of course, no matter how many times you prove a hypothesis correct, there could always be a next experiment that will prove it wrong. And so that's your job, really, is to try and prove the hypothesis wrong, because it only takes one instance of it being wrong to have to throw it away. Most philosophers of science no longer feel that's a very useful way to proceed, although many scientists still think of it as kind of the way they do things, even though I think they don't. But but they still think of it that way, and that has become this part of the scientific method as well. But you know. Um, I'll give you a quick historical example, if you want, from this. So so when the planet, um, I have to get the two planets straight, the planet Uranus was discovered first. And it was discovered, and it takes about 100 years for Uranus to make a complete circle of the sun, a complete orbit of the sun. So on its hundred near its 100th anniversary of making that orbit, people began to notice that it wasn't where it should have been by Newtonian Mechanics, using Newtonian physics, you should have been able to predict the orbit of Uranus, and it was not it was off. It was wobbling around, it hadn't gone as far as it was supposed to do a number of things about it. So you might have thought, well, that disproves Newton's hypothesis. That disproves Newtonian physics, we should throw it out. But in fact, what astronomers recognized was was that, well, maybe there's another planet, a very big planet, further away than Uranus, that we can't currently see with our telescopes easily, and that that's causing these perturbations in the orbit of Uranus. And so they made a bunch of calculations and figured out exactly where this other planet should be, looked there, and discovered Neptune. So Newton was saved. So you didn't want to throw out the Newtonian physics hypothesis because you did an experiment and it proved it, quote, proved it wrong. It failed. In that case, the failure led to a new discovery. Now, I should say just a few years later, people began to recognize this funny wobble in the orbit of Mercury, that it wasn't also following Newtonian physics, and there was a great search on for a new planet inside between Mercury and the Sun. They even gave the planet a name. It was called Vulcan. There is indeed no such planet. The reason Mercury's orbit wobbles is due to Einstein's theory of relativity and his description of gravity, which is different than Newton's. So in that case, it does disprove Newton, and indeed, Newton really is not entirely correct, right? So there you have two examples of of a case where the null hypothesis was proven somehow, but that they lead to two very different results. So I don't think you can just use the Popperian idea of falsifiability to, um, to determine whether a hypothesis is good or not.
0: So it's pretty clear to me how failure can lead to new discoveries in a lot of the basic sciences and even in neuroscience. But you spend two chapters talking about pharma and about the clinic. And I want to get to failure in those instances because, of course, they seem to have worse consequences, right? You don't want to, you know, inject people with a drug that is going to harm them. So so how is failure different in pharma and or the clinic?
1: Yeah, it's not only, of course, m- more uh, a serious problem, but, but it's a more expensive problem. Because so many drugs, I think, get to go through the various trial phases and get, and it gets more and more and more expensive. And then they fail at the very end and they don't make it through a phase three trial. And a great deal of money and a great deal of time and a great deal of effort has been spent on them. And and that's often a problem because I, I fear that the pharma companies, especially, become uninterested. They say, okay, phase three trials failed. Let's just close the whole operation down. And that I think is a kind of a mistake on their part. And, and I believe that that's changing a little bit now, I have to say. I've talked recently to people in big pharma. I can't remember actually whether I included this in the book. I think the book came out before I had this discussion. But, but the big pharma companies are beginning to realize that these simple Uh, clinical trials they use where there's a kind of a binary outcome, a yes or a no, and either enough patients were helped by this drug or they weren't helped by it, and that's the end of it. And we wash our hands of it if it was no, and we go on if it was yes and make a lot of money or whatever. But, But always within all that data, there were people that were helped, and... A reasonable question to ask is even if the whole population as a, as a, as a group was not helped or a, large, a significant enough portion of the population wasn't helped to prove the efficacy of the drug, some people were, and maybe we should go back and ask why they were. Why was it, what was it about this group of people? Is there anything in that they have in common? Do they have a genetic signature? Did they have a certain disease progression? Did they have this or that? And so we might we might actually learn something more about the disease, if you will, and learn something more about how to redesign a drug to move back into this area rather than simply abandoning it.
0: It's a bit of a slippery slope because, of course, you know, the drug company wants to sell a drug and so it wants to show any kind of an effect. And, you know, this just brought to mind There's there's been a, a recent controversy about a drug for Duchenne muscular dystrophy, uh, which, you know, was approved by the FDA. But for reasons that even within the FDA, the scientists were arguing, you know, it was just not like that the trial that had a very small number of patients and showed a very small, almost negligible effect um you know, that you're now giving false hope to these families, they're going to spend a lot of money, other drunk companies aren't going to want to try to develop drugs to, you know, compete in this market. You know, so I I feel like, you know, there, there is a real issue, too, that we don't want to just follow every rabbit hole. And, you know, we have to have some, you know, some signposts that we put out there when we're trying to evaluate drugs because, you know, they can be. You have a cancer drug who, you know, that might extend life for a month, but it costs a million dollars. I mean, you know, these are, these are difficult things to consider.
1: Yeah, so of course, these are, these are not entirely scientific issues, as you know. I mean, there, there are ethical issues, there are moral issues, there are value issues, and there are social and economic issues that, 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 all, that all impact on the science at that point. Um, so, so I, and I don't have a good answer for many of those other issues. I'm afraid I'm just a poor scientist, you know. Um, I wish there were easier answers for some of those other issues. There, there aren't. I do think that almost invariably, though, many of these clinical trials could be helped. By a thicker layer, a deeper layer of what I would call core or fundamental research, what's sometimes called basic research, but I hesitate to use that word because it's also often misunderstood as being simple. But the kind of core research to understand the disease, to understand the pathology a little bit better than we do uh, before we just go ahead and you know throw these drugs at it, which are sometimes discovered in random ways and things like that. I mean. Maybe a decent example of that is the case with the so-called um, SSRI inhibitors, drugs that were used for uh, bipolar and depression, and you know the Paxol or is it uh, Prozac, the Prozac, Prozac, group of drugs. So the first drugs that came out with this were loosely based on some idea that serotonin may have had something to do with mood disorders but it wasn't a very well-designed, well, well, it wasn't really well-supported theory. But they came up with these drugs that increased the amount of serotonin that was available in a person's brain. And they gave them to people who seemed to improve for the most part. I mean, there were some weird side effects and things like that, but generally speaking, there was improvement. And so the drug companies immediately went to work on trying to figure out how to make a better drug, which in some ways makes a little bit of sense. Let's make a better Prozac by making it more specific for this so-called SSRI protein, which is an uptake uh, uh, pump, a pump that, that pumps serotonin around. And this drug affected that pump. So so let's make a drug that only affects that pump and we're try to get rid of some of these side effects by getting rid of some other parts of the, the molecule that makes the drug up. And they did this and came out with a second generation of drugs, none of which made it past their clinical trials because none of them worked. So it turned out it wasn't just the inhibitor of the serotonin pump that was working in Prozac, it was some other thing that was in there as well, some, quote, impurity that was in there as well. But because we didn't have a deep enough understanding of mood and depression and the role of serotonin in it, there was no way to have known that short of spending a fortune and wasting a fortune on trying to make better Prozac's.
0: So I want to take a moment to remind our listeners that Stuart's book, Failure, Why Science is So Successful, is available at booksellers everywhere. And I I want to end by circling back a little bit to our, our conversation about reproducibility. And we are obviously in a very contentious election season. And science is playing a role in that as we listen to quotes from presidential candidates and and other candidates who are want to be elected and and you know decide whether or not they they are science supporters getting science right or wrong and I think for our listeners that's an important issue and so that brings me to how the layperson should be affected in terms of their understanding of science like you know if, if we do admit that failure is such a big part how do we ensure that we don't lose any credibility you know especially on issues that are of fundamental importance importance like climate change?
1: Yeah, so this is always a tricky question. I would say that the fact that science, um, that failure is a very important part of science, is what should give us faith in it and confidence in the results that we do get because we try very hard to ferret out failures i mean we try very hard to do many things and many things fail and we're pretty good at saying this failed we're usually fairly upfront about well that failed that didn't work i mean unless we're talking about real fraud And I think the climate science thing is a particularly good example of that. 95 or 6% of climate science is generally well agreed upon by all the scientists in and around the field. But at the very core of it, at the most difficult set of issues, at the very highest level of expertise of course, there's maybe 5% of it that we're still a little uncertain about and that we argue about, that climate scientists argue about. I don't argue about it because I'm not a climate scientist, I don't know enough in an odd way. it's the, it's, it's the very expression of uncertainty that tells us these are the people that are the real experts. They see the little things that could move it this way or that way just a touch. And so most of what they say, I think we should have quite, quite high confidence in and believe in because they're generally going to be right about that. They've figured out where the uncertainty is and that's what they're working on. And it's at this point only a relatively small portion of it. Now, that said what action we should take on it is another issue that is not scientific in my opinion. So I don't think there's any question that the science has shown that the world's temperature is rising and that sea levels will rise and so forth. What effects that will have socially and politically and economically is a different discussion whether we want those effects or not. I mean, there will be a cost to not using carbon as our main source of energy. And that cost will come down probably harder on poor people than rich people, as almost everything does. But it will have a big effect on the way our society works. And we should be able to make some decisions about whether we're willing to accept those effects or whether we're willing to accept two more feet of you know, sea level. Now, I know where I come down on that, but I think those are legitimate arguments to have in the political sphere. What's not legitimate is to say, oh, well, it's a hoax. It's just bullshit. It's the science is no good because that's simply not the case.
0: On that note, I want to thank you for being on Inquiring Mind, Stuart Feierstein.
1: Thank you, Andrea. This is, oh, I can't believe how fast that went, actually.
0: So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us on this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Eric Clark, John Kirk, Jordan Millar, Herring Chen, Nick Cadillac, and Sean Johnson. And once again, this episode is sponsored by Crazy Good Turns. Crazy Good Turns is a new podcast that celebrates people who do crazy good turns for others. This week, learn about Derek Kayongo and his unlikely story of hope and soap. Lots and lots of soap. Check it out at crazygoodturns.org minds or search Crazy Good Turns on iTunes or Stitcher. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com, and you can support us at patreon.com inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with the Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with many media outlets. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith. Our music is provided by award winning producer Rian Sheehan. And I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car or a house.